Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. Our guest who is scheduled for today, Mr. Daniel Clydman, is not able to be with us. We were informed yesterday that he had an unexpected family emergency. And fortunately, our associate producer, Linda Gully, was able to get in touch with economist Enrico Moretti, who agreed to switch dates with Mr. Clydman and appear on today's program. Before he joins us on the Costa Report, let me take a moment to tell you a little about his very distinguished career. Dr. Moretti graduated from Bocconi University in Milan and earned his Ph.D. in economics from the University of California at Berkeley. For a brief period of time, he served as an associate professor at UCLA before formally joining the faculty at Berkeley in 2004. He is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research in London, and also at the Institute for the Study of Labor and Bonn. Moretti is also the director of the Infrastructure and Urbanization Program at the London School of Economics in Oxford University. He has been the recipient of numerous awards, including the IZA Young Labor Economist Award and the Carlo Alberto Medal. This year, Moretti published a landmark analysis of labor markets in the United States. His book titled The New Geography of Jobs created three, uh, describes three emerging labor markets and demonstrates the implications each of these markets have on the income, health, and education in specific regions of our nation. It's my pleasure to have with us today a visionary scholar and one of the most important new voices in economics, Dr. Enrico Moretti. Welcome to the program, Dr. Moretti. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for being with us today. In just a moment, we're going to be talking about your groundbreaking book. But before we do, maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about your background and what it was about economics that interested you as a young man in Milan. I always been interested in, in, in social issues and social problems. And uh, growing up, I thought uh, maybe philosophy or sociology were the right fields. But I, 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 in taking economic classes, I realized that economics deals with a similar set of issues, but in a much more rigorous uh, way and so I, I, I early on I decided to to go into economics and I've been very happy with with that choice. 
it's very interesting that economics, uh, when I was in school, was considered a bit of a social science, uh, and yet it had all the underpinnings of mathematics and hard science analysis. So I, I completely understand what you mean. But you're a bit of a socioeconomist, yes? <laughs> well, um, I'm a labor economist. I study the labor market and in particular urban markets. And, um, uh, you know, in the past 15 years, economists have been uh, addressing a, a, an increasingly wide and, and large number of questions that used to be just the realm of sociology or or uh, uh, or political science. Uh, so so economists are a little bit an imperialistic uh, group right now, and and they're, they're they're using their methodologies and their statistical and econometric approach to to to. To colonize other discipline, so it's a good, it's a great time to be in economics right now. There's a lot of interesting questions to be looked at. Yes, and and it's definitely opening up from just simply analyzing uh, markets and currencies and that kind of thing. As you say, the implications uh, to social systems uh, is really opened up quite a bit in recent times. Now, at what point did you begin noticing a difference in the types of jobs and workers which were proliferating in specific areas within the United States? Well, um, there's always been differences in the level of uh, wages and incomes and uh, skills across regions in the United States. Um, but in the 60s and 70s, and even part of the 80s, those differences were not all that large. Over the past 30 years, uh, we've seen an increase, uh, a dramatic increase in the differences across uh, cities in the U.S. and regions in the U.S. Effectively, you know, we tend to think about the U.S. as one economy, but reality is that we have uh, three increasingly different economies. Um, on one end, you have cities like San Francisco or Seattle or Austin in Texas, uh, Raleigh, Durham in North Carolina, Boston or, or D.C. that have a very innovative, creative and, and very well-paid labor force. Uh, at the other extreme, you have uh, the Rust Belt cities like Detroit, Flint, or Cleveland that have been struggling for, for decades, and now they are shrinking and, and, and experiencing falling incomes. And then in the middle, there is the rest of the country, which seems undecided on which direction to take. And I think what, what's really relevant and what the book is about is the cause and the consequences of this great divergence among American communities. You say that there are, in the middle are these cities that are trying to decide, but we don't really have any cities that are trying to decide to be giant manufacturing plants, do we? I mean, aren't most of them pursuing technology and uh, alternative energy, green energy jobs? Don't they seem to be on the hunt for that so that they can be part of the future as opposed to the past? Well, they say they are, and they try, uh, but it's not, not many are are doing, are, are succeeding at it. Uh, you know, the, 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 the great innovation hubs of this country are not that many. We're talking about 12, 15, maybe 20 cities mm -hmm. that have developed a very successful uh, innovation sector. Um, and, you know, out of 320 uh, metro, metro areas, as defined by the 
the U.S. Census. So we're still talking about a small number of uh, vital, creative, and successful innovation hubs. Now, what do, you, what do you say to critics who say, well, you know, this has always been the case. Industries tend to concentrate around particular geographic areas, and this in turn attracts those types of laborers. And so the culture surrounding that industry is impacted as that industry grows and becomes more pervasive in that area. In Los Angeles, we saw the impact of the motion picture industry in Detroit, the automobile industry in Texas, the impact of large oil. So what, what is your response to that, that this isn't really anything? new you know people tend to concentrate industries tend to concentrate in certain geographic areas and has an impact on the surrounding culture that's true what's new is the power of this concentration forces and the difference between the winners the cities that do uh, get one of these innovation hubs and those that don't. So it's a quantitative difference. Um, these forces have been around forever, you're right. Uh, New York has always been the center of finance and LA has always been the center of, of entertainment. And uh, Athens, Georgia has always been the, the center for carpet production in the US. There are all sort of interesting, uh, very hard to explain pockets of industrial cluster in in the u.s mm -hmm. but what's new is that the in the knowledge economy uh these forces are much stronger than before and they're self-reinforcing and so cities that are able to attract uh an innovation sector are attracting even more of, of those good jobs and those skilled workers and cities that fail to do so they're missing out on that growth and the difference is it's growing uh, and is now the largest it has been in a century. I see. Now, we're going to have to take a short commercial break in just a moment. But I think just to paraphrase, it's not so much that it's a different trend. It's that the, di the difference between the impact that this has on the microeconomies in these urban areas has gotten more, much more substantial and may even get to a point where it can't be bridged, uh, where certain cities will leave uh, other cities behind. And I think that that's one of the things that you explore in your book. When we come back, let's talk about the areas of the country that you specifically refer to as brain hubs. You're listening to the Costa Report. There aren't many things you can trust these days, but thankfully you can still trust your taste buds. That's why I want to tell you about Caraccioli Cellars. Recently, I stopped by their tasting room right there on Dolores Street in downtown Carmel to sample their Pinot Noir. And well, folks, let me put it this way. I did not stop there. The Pinot was so far and above what you'd expect from a family-owned winery that I had to try their Chardonnay, Brut Rosé, and Brut Cuvée just to make sure the Pinot wasn't some fluke. And you know what? This may be the one and only time you hear me, Rebecca Costa, mention a winemaker on the air. If you don't know Caraccio, Sellers, then get your taste buds down to their tasting room on Dolores Street and ask them to pour you the same wines that won me over. Caraccioli Sellers, memorize that name because you're going to hear a lot about them. This caliber of wine doesn't stay a secret for long. Caraccioli Sellers, it's what I serve at my table and you'll be proud to serve it at yours. Are you looking for fresh, creative and healthy ideas to bring to your table? 
Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole makes it easy to eat the right foods with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. Whether it's Sunday night family dinner or a lunchtime indulgent with your favorite salad ingredients, let your culinary imagination soar with more than 30 varieties of salad blends that range from sweet and subtle to zesty and bold. For the ultimate in fresh convenience, try Dole's all-inclusive salad kits with farm-fresh lettuces, crunchy vegetables, and all-natural Dole specialty dressings and toppings. To learn more about Dole salads and for inspiring recipe ideas, visit Dole.com slash salads or like Dole Salad Guide on Facebook. With so many delicious and convenient choices, it's easy to find nutritious inspiration with Dole salads. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio is your lifestyle information source. Our focus includes food, wine, craft beer, travel and tourism trends, emphasizing healthy, local, and sustainable options. We've got you covered from 8 to 10 each and every Sunday morning, live, right here on KSCO AM 1080. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, your source for the lifestyle you love. Since 1849, California has been the new frontier, and the passion for innovation and development of great new products and services continues. But one thing that has changed is how these products and services are introduced, developed, and marketed to the consumer. Whether you're marketing a brand, a band, a product, or a service, Link Media Partners is here to help. To find out how we can help you, call 831-295-1849 or find us online at linkmediapartners.com. Hi, I'm R.J. Robertson, a lifetime resident of Santa Cruz and a Longevity associate. Two-thirds of all Americans are either overweight or obese. Which group do you belong? Was weight loss one of your New Year's resolutions? How's that working out for you? If your answer is not so good, then I've got the solution for you. It's Longevity's Slender FX weight management system. This is a system that is specifically designed to make it easy for you to drop the pounds. Look good at that upcoming reunion, wedding, or just going to the beach. So if you need to drop a few pounds or a lot of weight, order Longevity's Slender FX weight management system. You'll find it so easy to lose weight. Your friends will be asking you how you did it. Just go to kscoteam.com. That's kscoteam.com. And don't forget to ask about the business opportunities through Longevity. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and our guest today is award-winning economist and author of The New Geography of Jobs, Mr. Enrico Moretti. Now, certain areas in the country are known as brain hubs, and you cite the San Francisco Bay Area, Boston, Austin, and Durham as examples. What's a brain hub, and can you give our audience a specific example of an innovation job? Sure. The brain hub is a metropolitan area where uh, most of the labor force uh, or a large fraction of the labor force is highly skilled. Um, in these cities that you just mentioned, um, almost half of the workers in the labor force have a college degree or, or a master degree or, or a doctorate. Um, now, by contrast, j- just to give you a sense of how big this, this is, uh, cities at the other end of the spectrum, cities that don't have a lot of college graduates, um, for example, Flint, 
or Visalia in California or El Paso. Um, there, about one in ten workers has a college degree. So we're talking about um, if having five times more college graduates per capita in, in, in a brain hub uh, relative to the cities at the bottom. This is a stunning difference, which makes these brain hubs effectively very different economies from from the rest of of U.S. cities. Um, and it, it, what, what's different are, are two things. First of all, that these cities are able to attract much better employers, employers that are innovative. And what, what's, what's an innovation job? Well, of course, it's iTech. Of course, it's everything that, that has to do with technology and science, uh, like, like life science and so on. But it doesn't have to be just technology and science. There is a lot of innovation jobs in um, in entertainment, for example. Digital entertainment is a fast-growing industry from the point of view of, of jobs. There's a lot of innovation jobs in marketing, in finance. Um, so what's common about all these parts of the labor market is that these are uh, areas where employers are making something that it's unique, and then it cannot be, it's new, it's unique, and it cannot be easily reproduced abroad. And, and th- that makes it such that it adds value uh, and therefore, it's it's uh, it's a successful part of 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 the local economy. Um, yes, the production, generally speaking, is so complex that it's very very difficult to duplicate on foreign soil. It's not that easy. Um, take our science program at NASA, for example. Even if countries wanted to start today to catch up with the level of technology that NASA has produced, it'd be very difficult. Exactly, or take, um, you know, even when, when when it's not technologically so advanced, uh, it's uh, unique by design. For example, mm-hmm. a lot of Apple products are probably, you know, they, they have good technology, they're new technology, they are not earth-shaking new technology, but their design is unique, and it'd be very hard to, to, um, to replicate, either because of patents or because... Uh, you know, you really need you really need very good industrial designers. So, mm-hmm. what's good? What's what's good from the point of view of, of a worker in an innovative industry is that in that industry, your employer is creating value, and that value is not competed away by a billion other companies in China, in India, or in Brazil that could make the same thing at a tenth of the price. And that and some of that value will ultimately end up uh, to workers in the form of more jobs and better paying jobs. Now, one of the points that you bring out beautifully in your book is this ripple effect that each innovative job has on the local economy. You say that for every innovative job created, there are approximately five additional local jobs created. And out of those five, two will be professional jobs such as doctors or lawyers, and three are low-skilled uh, jobs for, as an example, hairdressers, waiters, and so on. And I believe you use Apple Computer as one of your examples. You say that they directly employ 13,000 workers in Cupertino, but the company generates 70,000 service jobs in the surrounding area. So that the more important effect that a technology company like Apple has on the economy is its ability to produce these service jobs. That's right. And I think that's the most important part of the story. Um, 
you know, not everybody in the U.S., not every worker in the U.S. can work for Google or for Apple or for the last, the latest biotech startup. That's correct. Um, in fact, the vast majority of us works in the local service sector. About 70% of American jobs belong to the local service sector. This includes, as you pointed out, jobs like the waiters, uh, the, the sales clerk, the taxi driver, the hairdresser, as well as jobs that have that require more education, like the teachers, the nurses, the doctors, the lawyers. All these positions, which include the vast majority of American jobs, are effectively, um, they provide a service um, that depends on wealth created somewhere else in the economy. Mm -hmm. Someone has to pay that waiter. Someone has to pay that uh, taxi driver. Someone has to pay that doctor. And, And what ultimately generates that wealth in innovation hubs is a very vital innovation sector. So... Although not all, not all of us can work in the innovation sector, those, those of us who work and live in innovation centers, um, their jobs ultimately depend on the vitality of the innovation sector. And I think the Apple example is, is very compelling. Apple has been criticized by many lately uh, because it makes physically makes the iPhone and the iPad in, in China and it doesn't, doesn't make it here and, and, and therefore it has very few production jobs in the U.S. But the reality is that Apple sustain uh, tens of thousands of local service jobs in, in the local economy. And right, and even if they brought the manufacturing over here, according to you, it would produce very few sur- additional service jobs if they did that. But Mr. Moretti, as I understand it, the innovative jobs that you describe, they represent probably less than 10% of the U.S. economy. So is this a case where 10% of the labor force is responsible for keeping an additional 50% of us working? Or do I have the math wrong on that? Well, in, in Innovation Hubs, that's the case. That's indeed the case. Wow. Uh, and it, it, it has always been the case. I mean, it, 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 you know, before, the difference is that before it was the manufacturing sector that was that engine of, of wealth creation. Right. The manufacturing sector has long stopped to be that engine, and luckily, at least for some cities, the innovation sector is picking up where the manufacturing sector has, has left. To me, that's the most important part of the story because um, it, it really points to the fact that the innovation sector matters to all of us, whether we work in iTech, and even if we don't work in iTech or innovation, it, it's the, it, it, it supports... Uh, these this, this local service jobs. Right, uh, but as a mathematical formula, I think that's very startling and it's very important for the mayors and the governors and the people that are responsible uh, for the financial conditions of states and cities and towns to understand that if they can just even uh, invite 10% of the jobs, local jobs, uh, if they can even make those innovative jobs, that they can support an additional 50% of the service jobs in that local area. Now, we have to take another short break. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about the loss of manufacturing jobs in America. You're listening to the Costa Report.
Well, it's about time. Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, and I'm here to tell you the wait is over. The new Rebecca Costa mobile app is now available at the Apple iTunes Store. Just click on the iTunes icon on your screen, and you can download the free Rebecca Costa app. You get an instant message when new episodes of the Costa Report are available. Breaking news, links to password-protected videos, and the opportunity to grab free tickets to speaking events in your area. So don't wait. Go to Apple iTunes and download the free Rebecca Costa app right now and stay informed, connected, and alert. Walk on. Trudy, you all right? I'm practicing for karaoke nights at Britannia Arms. You know, Fridays in Aptos and Saturdays at the new pub in Capitola. Will you come to cheer me on? Well, I don't know. Come on. You know what, Trudy? You do really well at the trivia night at Britannia Arms. Wednesdays in Aptos, Tuesdays in Capitola. Crikey, I might just have a go at that. Right, there's always a reason to go to the Britannia Arms. Great live music Saturdays in the Aptos pub and Fridays at the new Capitola one. Music and grub by the ocean sounds lovely. The pipes are calling. Karaoke, mm. trivia, live music, any night's a fun night at Britannia Arms. Now they have two pubs to choose from because two Brits are better than one. The Britannia Arms now has two locations in Capitola village on the esplanade and at 8017 Soquel drive in aptos when you want straight talk great service and the best deals you will always find them at north bay ford in santa cruz hello i'm jeff winterholder north bay ford is a locally owned dealership with low overhead friendly small town values and the best deals on new and pre-owned cars trucks and rvs get this jeff's deal of the week at north bay ford get the deal of the week on the bill ford tough 2012 f-150 4x4 super crew motor trends 2012 truck of the year why buy anything less when you can choose between zero percent for 60 months or 500 $100 F-150 5-liter retail bonus customer cash plus $2,000 retail customer cash plus $1,000 Ford retail bonus customer cash $750 retail trade-in assistance bonus cash. Details at NorthBayFord.com. We need a quality pre-owned economy car for your college student, a new family car for your Sunday drives, or a fleet of powerful new trucks for your berry ranches. Look first to your friends at locally owned North Bay Ford. 1999 Soquel Avenue, Santa Cruz, or on the web at NorthBayFord.com. Hi, folks. Warren Knox here of Knox Roofing. With the Olympics and all, I thought maybe you'd like to hear about some records. Like, do you know who the fastest person in the world is? Hussein Bolt ran the 100 meter in 9.58 seconds in August 16, 2009. Florence Joyner ran it in 10.49 seconds in July 16, 1988. Jeffrey Mutai from Kenya ran the Boston Marathon in 2 hours and 3 minutes in April of 2011. And there's Randy Barnes from the U.S. in May of 1990 threw a shot put 75 feet. Holy smokes! Well, the record here at Knox Roofing is that we go the distance with our customers to make sure their roof will last and hold up to all the elements your roof goes through. You might say we run the Olympics in some event or another every day. Okay, give us a call anytime at 461-0634. Thanks, folks! 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm here today with economist and author of The New Geography of Jobs, Dr. Enrico Moretti. And before we went to the break, we were talking about the tremendous impact that innovation and creative jobs have on uh, generating service jobs in the local economy. Now, you also point out that during the past 30 years, the United States has lost almost 400,000 manufacturing jobs a year, but not necessarily to foreign competition. Mostly these seem due to new technologies. And you mentioned that every car that GM produced in 1950, they only need, they, they need 70% less labor to produce that automobile today. So, it seems to me that we have two problems. Our population is growing at, at an explosive rate and we need fewer people to perform the tasks which can be automated. So how does that get resolved? Well, if you've ever been in a factory, the first thing you notice is that there are no more workers there anymore. It's all machines, it's all made by machines. And uh, uh, that's a problem in the sense that it means fewer blue collar workers it's also a good thing because it means higher productivity for those who um, do still retain a job there. Um, and the first thing to point out is that this is nothing new. It has always occurred. It occurred in agriculture uh, a century ago uh, when we moved from, from uh, carriages to tractors and fertilizer, the productivity of the agricultural workforce. Uh, boom, and we went from having half of the people in the U.S. employed in agriculture to about 1%. Mm-hmm. The same is happening today, has been happening today, with manufacturing. Um, uh, the, the automation, computerization, uh, and robotization of factories, uh, it's, it's make, it allows American producers to produce more and more with less and less. Not many people realize, but the American manufacturing sector um, is producing twice as much output today than it was 30 years ago. But it just, you know, the reason why we think about manufacturing as a dying industry is because it, it employs fewer and fewer um, blue-collar workers. By well, the, way, the reason we, we refer to it as a dying industry is because it is dying. It is dying in terms of jobs, yes. It's certainly not dying in terms and, of... And production. propping it up, you know, for example, the recent uh, bail, not too recent, but the bailout money, which rescued the three big automakers, um, would you have tied that into some mandate for more innovative and creative jobs, or are we just propping up a manufacturing industry because it makes us feel good and we're, we need those votes? I mean, I... I, I'm, I think it's I, mostly the latter. Uh, because I'm I'm listening to what you say. Every innovative and, and creative job produces five service jobs, whereas a manufacturing job, even if you cre- artificially create one, may only lead to one or two service jobs. So the quickest road to an economic recovery and putting people back to work from a mathematical standpoint is more innovative and creative jobs. Do, is, do I have that right? You do, absolutely. And it actually it's even more important than that. You know, if you are a mayor or a governor of a, of a state and you're trying to create jobs for the least advantage of your uh, citizens, um, creating, attracting innovative jobs actually is, it's, is the way to go. It's attracting innovative jobs for highly skilled workers, which ultimately will support local service jobs for less skilled workers. That effect, the multiplier effect, is much larger than trying to attract manufacturing 
companies. Um, but I have to be honest with you, all of these job retraining programs, you know, where they're going to take a manufacturing worker who's been working on a lathe or a drill press and help them to, uh, I don't know, become a programmer next year, uh, they, they have failed. Our transition plan has been very dismal. Yes, I'm not, I'm not necessarily uh, arguing in favor of those programs. What I'm saying is that um, the, the job creation that you obtain from supporting the innovation sector is much larger than the one that, they, than the one that you obtain from supporting the manufacturing sector. Today, uh, it's politically much more palatable for policymakers to support manufacturing jobs because they, there's this image of uh, someone with a high school degree or a high school dropout uh, that can get a good job that pays, uh, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand a year. Mm-hmm. The reality is that um, those jobs are not coming back. That that throwing money at this sector is probably unlikely to reverse this long run trend um, of thirty years of job losses. And and so and this is not even. Uh, and, and when you talk about indirect job creation, this is not even the most effective use of money. It, it, it would be much more effective to to support the, the innovation side. Right. So the more we invest in manufacturing jobs, the poorer the investment in the, the job recovery program becomes because, in fact, the writing is on the wall for these manufacturing jobs. More importantly, though, what do you do about the people who have had a career in manufacturing? And, you know, how do they go back to work? How do you re- re-employ these people? And then I'm just old enough to remember in the 1950s and the 1960s, we had sociologists writing about the upcoming leisure class. Uh, it's, it's hilarious to me because everyone I know is working two and three jobs and hardly has any time off. But we were concerned that automation and continued acceleration of industrialization would eventually cause this leisure class where you would have no work to do. <laughs> well, and I don't know how that backfired. <laughs> It's actually, there is also an additional aspect to, to this, which is the fact that even when uh, you do, you do uh, save some manufacturing jobs, the, the typical manufacturing position today is not the one that most people have in mind. It's not a, a position for someone with a high school degree or, 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 or less. Um, in the same period, in these 30 years, uh, at the same time where we're losing about 400,000 blue-collar positions per year, the number of engineers in manufacturing has doubled. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this image of manufacturing as um, a sector that provides jobs for those who don't have a lot of education or a lot of formal skills is actually um, more of an image of the past. More and more manufacturing has to do with engineers, industrial designers, uh, marketers, pe- people that have at least a, a college degree. And I think going back You're to the Apple example... Right, yeah. Uh, going back to the Apple example, that's exactly what Apple does. Apple, uh, most of the employees, the engineers, the designers, the marketers here, and most of the production is actually, most of the blue-collar jobs are, 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 are long gone. 
I live on the central coast of California, and as you know, it's been known to be called the breadbasket of California, and we've always been dominated by agriculture. And there is a very erroneous perception that agriculture somehow involves a lot of unskilled labor. But I've never seen an industry go through the transition they're going through right now. I mean, they have gone from growing crops in the field and harvesting them to having to adopt techniques for microbiology and chemistry and you know you walk into these uh, large plants and um, it really they are uh, they are as equipped as any pharmaceutical or biotech firm sure sure so the the nature of the jobs i think what you point out is even even in manufacturing the the very nature of the job is is calling for a, a much more highly skilled uh, labor and uh, and i think that that's a, that's a very good point uh, the 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 basic unskilled labor will not be able to find those jobs eventually in either agriculture or in manufacturing as well so what if what recommendation would you make to a a small town or a small city that's trying to revitalize their job program uh, in addition to attracting innovative and creative jobs what kinds of things would you recommend that they do <clears throat> well, it's uh, the first thing to, to realize is that uh, the strategies that we're adopting now are, are not working very well. What are we doing now? Well, every time a large employer or uh, um, a large company announces plan to open a new factory, a new lab, a new facility of some type in the U.S., all these states and all these cities start bidding to attract that company and as you can imagine when you have dozens of desperate cities and desperate states to attract some type of external investment the bidding becomes more and more generous um, just to give you a sense absolutely mr uh, moretti i'm so sorry i have to interrupt you to take our last commercial break but let's pick that up on the other side of the break and find out how you feel about public works programs you're listening to the costa report There's no question that selling a home can be a tricky business when the economy is uneven. But here's a little bit of good news. Not only are financing options opening up, America's love affair with the Monterey Peninsula still continues. Homes that are priced and marketed right are moving. Hi, I'm Judy Profetta, owner-broker of Alon Pinnell Realtors in Carmel, where we're happy to report that inventories are coming down and homes are selling. So if you're getting ready to sell or listing your home, call Alon Pinnell Realtors in Carmel at 831-622-1040 or stop by our offices on the corner of Ocean and Dolores or our main office on Unipero between 5th and 6th in downtown Carmel. Alon Pinnell Realtors, serious brokers for serious sellers. Hello, my name is Tom Burkhart, founder and CEO of Savon Investment Group. We recently opened an office on the Monterey Peninsula headed by local 22-year resident Peter Truman. Our firm began working with clients in the Bay Area 20 years ago. We understand the anxiety of the typical investor, particularly in these volatile times. We're SEC registered, we don't sell products, and we don't receive commissions. We are fee-only advisors. We have our own skilled six-person investment committee consisting of two PhDs and two chartered financial analysts. In fact, they manage my money. 
We manage accounts for $1 million and above. You can reach us at 1-800-672-8268, 1-800-672-8268, and visit our website at www.savantig.com. Again, www.savantig.com. Thank you. It's out there. Faster, stronger, more agile. Introducing the all-new John Deere Gator RSX 850i. 62 horsepower, 53 miles per hour. The RSX 850i. It's a whole new species of Gator. See it in action at JohnDeere.com slash Gator or wrestle one down at your local RDO equipment company. Not only does RDO equipment company have the new Gators, they've got all the bells and whistles to go with them. Customer focused, quality driven. RDO equipment company. Find your new Gator RSX 850i as well as all the equipment you need to manage your land at RDO Equipment. Whether you have one acre or hundreds of acres, RDO Equipment's knowledgeable and experienced sales and parts departments help you find the right equipment and parts for your needs. And RDO staff of service professionals will keep your equipment running so you can keep working. Get the right equipment for your job at RDO Equipment in Salinas and Monterey and RDOEquipment.com. Jay with SafeLight Autoglass. We know you depend on your vehicle. So when you have autoglass damage, you need it fixed fast. SafeLight has more glass in stock than anyone. So when you schedule a replacement with SafeLight, we'll get you back on your way faster. Plus, our work is backed by the only national lifetime guarantee. Keeping you covered anywhere. Just tell your insurance company you want SafeLight. Or call 1-800-800-2727. Or go to SafeLight.com. SafeLight Repair, SafeLight Replace. Don't miss the next perspectives. Virtually all cancers are all substantially increased when you're vitamin D deficient. Every Saturday from 12 noon to 1 o'clock. You've tuned in to the Perspectives Radio Show. My name is Donald Davidson. I'm your host and joining me in the studio as special guest host is Dr. Stan. Join Donald Davidson, Dr. Stanley Monteith, Dr. David Biles, Tom Quinn, and others. Perspectives every Saturday from 12 noon to 1 o'clock on KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. Our guest today is economist Enrico Moretti. And before the last break, you were saying that the current practice of cities bidding against each other to attract companies which provide innovative, creative jobs may not be such a good system because we get desperate cities submitting desperate bids. Well, let me give you just an example. Uh, Panasonic received $100 million from the state of New Jersey to move its headquarter to Newark. Well, if you do the math, that, that's almost $150,000 $150, per job promised. Wow. Uh, You've got to wonder whether that's a good deal for the residents of, of Newark or whether uh, there are better ways to spend, to spend that money. And that's not even one of the most um, expensive type of deals. Um, and even when these programs make sense from the point of view of a community, so even when you can attract uh, and employers and not paying, not overpaying it. It's not obvious that these programs make sense for the point of view of the U.S. as a whole because um, they basically can turn into a zero-sum game uh, where the only winner ends up the, being the company that that uh, was going to open the the facility anyway. So I think we're spending we're spending between thirty to fifty thousand uh, thirty to fifty billion dollars a year. 
in this type of programs. And I think we're, we need to rethink the rationale for, for, for this type of policies because um, it's, all, it's basically the same amount that we're spending for unemployment insurance in a normal year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of this money, uh, it's unclear whether it, it's, it actually has... It benefits this community in any specific Well, and who's to say that the jobs that Panasonic brings there aren't manufacturing jobs? Yeah. Uh, I it, mean, there's it, nothing to say that they're innovative or creative jobs that will produce five service jobs, right? No, in fact, a lot manufacturing companies tend to attract uh, the biggest bidding in, in this in this type of in yes this type of deals. Um, so it's we, we want to rethink the way we are spending money to attract economic activity to struggling communities because we're spending a lot. I'm not sure we are getting a lot out of it. It seems to me that one of the hidden suggestions that was in your book, maybe it wasn't so hidden, <laughs> uh, was that uh, one way to really attract innovative jobs is to have a highly educated population in that city. Yes. Um, Today, the best predictor of a community future economic success is the number of college graduates in the labor force. Um, this didn't used to be the case. If you look at 60 or, or, or 50 years ago, um, the communities that were the most prosperous, the one that had the highest wages, the highest income per capita, were communities that had a lot of physical capital in place. Detroit had the best wages in the nation because workers in Detroit were working with the best physical capital, the best machines, Mm -hmm. the most advanced technology. Today, it's really human capital that's the key uh, predictor of the community economic success. And human capital, it's basically workers' skills and workers' education. Um, And that's why the innovation hubs and the brain hubs of America are doing so much better than the uh, than the other city. J- just to give you a sense of the magnitude, um, in 1980, an high school graduate in Flint was making roughly the same amount of money that uh, an high school graduate in Austin uh, was making. Mm-hmm. Today, the high school graduate in Austin is making twice as much per hour work than the uh, high school graduate in Flint. Mm-hmm. And it's not that the, the high school graduate in Austin is smarter or is, is working longer hours. It's that Austin is a brain hub. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's the entire ecosystem, the entire local economy that is different. So the same person can be vastly, uh, be more successful depending on where they live. Yeah. Now, we have an important election coming up in November. And according to many analysts, the election may just hinge on who has the most viable jobs program. And last week, Ralph Nader was on our program, and he was in favor of initiating massive public works programs to put Americans back to work to rebuild our deteriorating infrastructure. But after reading your book, unless those jobs were tied to technology, energy, or some innovative um, sector, it might be similar to adding more manufacturing jobs, which I'm not sure will help the economy nearly as much. Do I have that right? I agree, actually. Uh, I don't think that the return, the economic return of investment in public infrastructure today is as high as the economic return of investing in human capital and innovation. Um, in other words, spending a uh, million dollars in uh, resurfacing our local roads probably improves 
the productivity of workers and firms in that area. But spending the same amount of money to increase education and to uh, in, invest in innovation, in my view, would have a much larger economic impact. The problem from the point of view of the uh, presidential election is that it's not going to have a short-run impact. I mean, we're talking about investment that pay off in, in terms of years, uh, maybe decades. Certainly not. Oh, but we're uh, so impatient. Everybody wants a result, you know, by November. Yeah, I know. And I think that's one major uh, problem with, um, with, both, with both campaigns. Mm-hmm. Both campaigns are effectively promising that uh, if we can only fix this one part of the economy, then we're going to be fine. Well, the reality is that the economy is not like a car. And, and if we just find the little problem there, we fix it, the car will start running again. Um, most politicians and most voters overestimate the power of the government to influence the short run fluctuations in the economy. Mm-hmm. What the government can do, and is better quick to do is to influence the long run uh, potential of an economy. Uh, unfortunately, voters and politicians are much more myopic. They look only up to the next election. Well, unfortunately, that causes them to engage in highly unproductive mitigations that seem to produce these results, and then they try to stitch them all together as though all those little incremental mitigations are somehow going to add up to a long-term policy. It's it's really tragic. It is. Um, I, I think we, um, we spend too much time discussing what we should do um, to fix the economy in the next month or two months or three months, or, or how these latest economic news affects uh, you know, jobs in two months, three months. Of course, the short run matters, and people are, 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 you know, if you don't have a job, I understand you're impatient. You want solution in the short run. But the reality is that there's very little that the government can do to create jobs out of thin air in the very, very short run. But there's a lot that the government can do to promote future economic growth. And, uh, and that, you know, and we're talking about making a big difference for, for our future prosperity. Absolutely, and I think one of the places they can start is to uh, read your book, and uh, it make because it makes perfect sense that we would begin investing in education and a highly skilled labor force, and that 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 is the key thing that pays off in the long run. Now, before we run out of time today, please tell listeners where they can go to get your book and how they can uh, stay in touch with you. Do you have a website? Yes, I do. If you Google me, I come up on top. Um, you can get the book from Amazon or any other online retailer, uh, and most uh, bookstores also carry it. And uh, um, you can get also it for, for in uh, as, a, as an ebook format. Okay, and the book is called The New Geography of Jobs by Enrico Moretti. Uh, Well, that's all the time we have for today. But before we say goodbye, I'd like to thank you for taking time to be with us and wish you continued success on your book. Thank you, Dr. Moretti. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Before we wrap up our first hour... For those of you fortunate enough to live in or around the Carmel area, I will be at the beautiful, the gorgeous, the fun Caraccioli Tasting Room right there on the corner of Dolores Street and Ocean at 6 p.m. this evening. The event is open to the public, and if I have not had an opportunity to meet you, 
Well, what better opportunity is there than over a glass of my favorite wine? That's Caraccioli Tasting. Uh, it, their, their tasting room is open at 6 p.m. tonight. It's on the corner of Dolores and Ocean Avenue. That's 6 p.m. tonight, Dolores and Ocean Avenue, and I hope to see you there. And last but not least, many of you know our guest next week as Lieutenant Munch on the popular television series Law and Order SVU, or as Kathy Griffin's mother calls it, SUV. <laughs> Outspoken comedian and iconoclast Mr. Richard Belzer will be with us. Don't miss Richard Belzer next week right here. Same time, same place on your favorite weekly news program. Until then, I'm Rebecca Costa, and you've been listening to the Costa Report. Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of the Costa Report. We have an important election coming this November, and I know that many folks are struggling right now. And if you're not struggling, well, then you're just flat out worried. I know that you're hoping that the next president, whoever they are, will have a plan for getting us out of an economic hole that keeps getting deeper. But this time around, the answers may not come from the top down. Something is happening to us, and it is happening to all people in all nations at the exact same time. And that is why I am asking you to take a moment to read The Watchman's Rattle. It's a book that will change the way you see our problems and also the upcoming election. So please pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle. Do it now. It's available at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and independent bookstores everywhere. You can also grab a copy at Rebecca Costa. But don't wait. Take a moment to get your copy and together let's get our lives and our country moving forward again. Hey, it's me, your piggy bank. Remember when you were a little kid? All the dimes and quarters in my back. Yeah, that was good times. Good times. Now lately, I gotta be honest, you've been ignoring me. Money's been slipping through your hands like a greased pig. <laughs> get it? Because I'm a... Anyway, I know how it is. Now that you get a real paycheck, it's nice to have stuff. You'll start saving money next year. Well, I hate to tell you, but good saving habits start now. Put just 20 bucks in the bank a month. Make your own coffee at home instead of that latte every morning. Brown bag it to work instead of ordering in. Those changes alone could save you thousands of dollars a year. Come on, I'm your piggy bank. We can be together again, me and you, the special types. <laughs> anyway, if you don't want me to cry anymore, feed me. Go to feedthepig.org. For more ideas on how to save, feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Red Hot News Talk, AM 1080, KSCO, Santa Cruz. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 